It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine, with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and, like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Maine has long inspired human inquiry into how things work, how they connect, how they influence our lives and our livelihoods. In our program this morning, we've invited some um, writers to share what in the world of science in Maine inspires them. They'll read from some of their own work and point us in the direction of other science writers who draw on Maine as their muse. And I'm happy to in, in welcome some folks here in the studio. Catherine Schmidt is a science writer at the University of Maine Sea Grant, a colleague of mine. And she's also the author of The Coastal Companion, published by Tilbury House in 2008. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Ron. Speak right into that microphone. Uh, also, Tom Groening. Tom is the editor of the Working Waterfront News with the Island Institute, but formerly with the Republican Journal and Bangor Daily News. Welcome to you, Tom. Thank you. And Murray Carpenter. Murray is a freelance journalist. Um, he's, uh, his stories uh, have appeared in the New York Times and um, he's also been on Maine Public Radio numerous times. And he has a forthcoming book, Caffeinated, which is due out in March of 2014. We may get a chance to talk about that. It's science, but perhaps not Maine exactly science. Welcome to you, Murray. Thanks for having me. Um, for each of you, could you could um, give us a little bit of background, how you came to the to the, the profession of, of writing. Um, Catherine, uh, starting with you, a little bit about your Sea Grant uh, position and uh, how you came to be uh, interested in, in writing about science. Sure. Um, I've always been interested in writing, but I think I actually went to school for science, so I decided to come at it from that angle in terms of getting a really strong background and foundation in the sciences. So I came to Maine, to the University of Maine, to get a master's degree in ecology and environmental science. And while I was in graduate school, I started freelancing um, for some papers, actually worked with Murray during those years. And then when I graduated with my master's, I was lucky enough where Sea Grant has a position called science writer, and that opened up just when I was getting done with school. Mm. And, and what was it about science that intrigued you? Well, I think science is one way of looking at the world. Um, there's lots of different ways of looking at the world, but for me, it gave me the inspiration um, to write about things. So understanding how things work and getting to know um, sort of the facts about plants and animals and just learning more about them by studying them and being out in the field and having to understand them. I used to be a wetlands consultant before I came to graduate school and so I used to go out and map up, map where the wetlands were and where they weren't and that can be a very fine and fuzzy line and so science is one way to help you figure out 
where you might put things on a map. And did that kind of originate as a as a young person, being out in the in the world and having that kind of curiosity? Yep, I grew up uh, in northern New Jersey, not a place that you think of as having a lot of nature, but I had a patch of woods in my backyard and a little brook that edged my yard, and I spent a lot of time in those woods. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to, to Tom. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to, to be a writer, and then um, specifically interested in science. Well, I was fortunate enough to be hired at the Republican Journal newspaper, the weekly newspaper in Belfast in 1988, I guess, early 88. I had written a little freelance for them before that. Kind of always knew I wanted to be a journalist and it took a little while to fall into it. I think I was, I guess I was like 29 when I finally got employed full time at it and just fell in love with it. Um, And community journalism is a lot of fun. being very close to your sources and accountable to your community and so on. And so I did that for 11 years, and I guess about half of that as editor. Uh, Murray was one of my reporters, had to twist his arm to come work for us, but he was, like many reporters in weekly newspapers, overqualified and underpaid, but, mm. so that's mm. where the arm twisting right. came in. But um, I realized as a journalist, particularly in community journalism, you're, you're a generalist, you're know a little bit about a lot of things um you're not an expert you're you know as, as Catherine is um but that kind of suits me my temperament um and I, I really got hooked on that um and then I left in 1998 to work for the Bangadeli News and it's a general assignment reporter and I did a four and a half year stint as an editorial writer um there before coming back to Belfast and now uh, as of February I joined the Island Institute and they put out this uh, newspaper, free newspaper called The Working Waterfront, which is distributed up and down the coast. They print 50,000 copies, which surprised me as, as at that number. It's the third, I guess, the third largest circulated paper. Mm. In, I mean, it's, it's 10 times a year. It's free, but still. Mm. Um, and, and they very much see it as a way to reach the public with important issues um, relating to um, the islands uh, and the, the kind of working waterfronts. Um, so I've, I'm really enjoying that. And I guess, uh, you know, first and foremost, I think journalist is a, a translator to taking someone's story, some complicated issue, whether it's government or science or whatever, and kind of explain it to people. Um, and I, I think um, that's what I've learned to do. Mm-hmm. And so in, as a community journalist, you were both close to your sources, but also close to your readers. So um, you were right there. Which is, is great. I mean, when you run into them in, in the grocery store and they poke their finger in your chest, and, <laughs> <laughs> especially when you're writing editorials for the local paper and, right. and taking political positions. But I, I absolutely love that. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the best rather than, than hiding behind, you know, hiding in some ivory tower or something. It's, it's, it's great. Great. And how about you, Murray? Tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to journalism. Well, I came, I came late, uh, and uh, I, I always wanted to be a writer, and I had a science background. My undergraduate degree is in psychology, and I have a graduate degree in environmental science. And uh, I was freelancing, uh, doing some actually fishing uh, stories for magazines, and then I went to work for the Republican Journal as a reporter. I think I remember it slightly differently than Tom does. I remember having to twist his arm to let me write there. But um, that was a really fantastic job. After that, uh, I worked for Maine Times as a reporter, uh, kind of uh, as, as it was having some, some problems. In fact, two weeks after I got hired, the paper first collapsed and then moved up to Bangor, and I went to work for them again. 
Uh, I've also done a lot of freelancing over the years, and I published for three and a half years a newspaper called uh, Northern Sky News, which was a monthly, which Catherine wrote for a lot, which was an uh, an effort to do uh, eco-regional environmental news, including New England and the Canadian Maritimes. And I've also worked for Maine Public Broadcasting as a radio reporter for a year and a half. And most recently, I've been working on this book about mm. caffeine, but uh, still doing a lot of uh, mostly environmental reporting, but uh, environmental slash science reporting. That's what I really like mm. to do. Great, great. Well, what I'd um, like to do is ask each of you to, to read something um, that's kind of an example of your work. And we'll start with Catherine and work our way around and see what um, themes might emerge from, from that, and that'll continue our conversations. So first, Catherine Schmidt. Uh, sure. I'm going to read from a magazine article that came out in Maine, Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, and this is about sturgeon and the Penobscot River. Uh, we had a full moon earlier this week, which is the sturgeon moon, so this article is about that. Two centuries ago, sturgeon could be found 70 miles inland from the Atlantic Ocean, upstream of Bangor to at least Old Town on the Penobscot River, where they spawned at the foot of the first steep falls and ledges. Sturgeon would have crowded at the foot of these falls when they spawned during native drawing native Penobscots to hunt them beneath the light of the full moon in August, the sturgeon moon. People studying river restoration, the potential return of long lost fish, look to the past to guide their work. They study historical records to identify where sturgeon might be hiding out. This is the evidence. Archaeologists unearthed 4,000 year old sturgeon remains at riverside campsites of the ancestral Wabanaki people. In the 17th century, John Jocelyn included sturgeon in his list of New England's rarities, one of eight fish in greatest request with the Indians. Jocelyn also wrote that the Penobscot River was famous for multitudes of mighty large sturgeon. In 1800, fishermen harvesting other sea-run fish like shad, alewives, and salmon complained that sturgeon tangled and tore their nets. Medieval elites considered the sturgeon a royal fish, and for centuries its presence at a meal conveyed high social rank. New Englanders caught on to these European tastes, and fishermen began targeting sturgeon in the early 1900s. The coarse, oily flesh was sliced, parboiled, and batter-fried, or cubed and pickled or smoked. Then, as American caviar trade emerged, four-masted vessels from New York crowded into Maine rivers to harvest sturgeon roe. Netting sturgeon by lantern light, they would bring a fish alongside the boat, cut the tail off, and let it bleed to death before hauling it on board and adding it to the pile of egg-filled sturgeon stacked like logs upon deck. The best caviar came from the freshest fish, and so it was necessary to strip the roe from the sturgeon as soon as possible. Local fishermen blamed the out-of-state boats for ruining the sturgeon fishery, believing that the blood in the river drove the remaining fish away. Fishing, pollution, and dams devastated sturgeon populations worldwide. In New England, short-nosed sturgeon have been on the endangered species list for 45 years, and Atlantic sturgeon are considered threatened. People around here like to say that at one time you could walk across the river on the backs of salmon. They say the same thing about the decks of ships. Today, most of us accept a reality with fewer fish. The baseline has shifted, as described by fisheries biologist Daniel Pauley. Ecologists Karen Lindbergh and John Waldman pushed the concept a step further, claiming that ecosystems are unraveling at rates that go unnoticed. When a community no longer knows or cares when the salmon run begins in spring or where to see a sturgeon breach, a kind of eco-social anomie sets in, a listless breakdown in human connections to the rest of the natural world. 
Perhaps this is why for so long, no one bothered to look on the bottom of the Penobscot River for the endangered short-nosed sturgeon. And maybe it explains what I was doing on that boat with sturgeon researchers, hoping to see and touch a relic of the dinosaur era, a survivor of ice ages and a sudden, if awkward, symbol of renewal. Very nice. Very good. It's what a sweep of, of, of human and, and ecological history in that in that short piece, Catherine. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And and um, that connection that that um, you aspire to have us have with the natural world, so that we still care. Yeah. For a while, I I seem to be have been getting obsessed with certain animal species and the obsession would build and I'd read about them and research about them and then it's like I had to see them or touch them so um, and a lot of them were these sort of ancient species so it it was snapping turtles for a while and I did a story for Murray and Northern Sky News about snapping turtle turtles in Mary Meeting Bay um, and then it was um, the sturgeon I mean I was obsessed for years and you know, hadn't seen one breach yet when they jump out of the river, like you can really see them in Hollowell on the Kennebec breaching, especially in June and July. And so I was obsessed and I managed to get out on the boat with the University of Maine researchers and was there when they caught the second and third fish in the Penobscot. Now we know that there's, you know, a population in the hundreds and thousands of fish in the river, but they had just discovered them when I wrote that story. And so with the restoration of the Penobscot, we expect them to kind of reclaim their traditional habitat. Yeah, so spawning has not been documented yet, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. So with the fish gaining access to Old Town Falls, which is historically their limit of where they would have reached, they'll have access to their full habitat. And so if they are going to spawn, we'll, we'll know, you know, in a year or two. Mm. And they're big fish, right? I mean, yeah, Atlantics are huge. Atlantics are, you know, six to eight feet, and the short nose are like three to four feet. So, I mean, they they are dinosaurs. And, mm-hmm. and when they breach, they get clear out of the water, right? They 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 jump vertically out of the water, feet in the air. I, so the scientist question is why? Why do they leap out of water? Yeah. Know? So no one knows for oh. sure. Um, there's a couple theories. One is that. The common one you hear is that they're trying to rid themselves of parasites, um, but that's not really ever been shown to be why they're jumping. They certainly look like they're enjoying themselves when they (laughs) leap. Um, It could be mating behavior where they're trying to show off, look how high I can leap, Um, or it might just be because it feels good to jump out of the river (laughs) when you've been living in the mud for so long, you know. So they're they're, they're bottom dwellers? They are bottom dwellers. Yep, they, they eat. They kind of have... Their mouth is on the bottom of their snout, and so they kind of suck things out of the mud like a vacuum cleaner. Right. Right. Um, but they're, and I think this story kind of shows another way of answering your earlier question. And sort of science, it's inspiring because it gives me some language to play with as a writer. So scientists use words that um, give you more vocabulary mm-hmm. um, that can help sort of explain things. And then going along with scientists in the field is a nice way to learn about something as well. The shifting baseline notion is one good example. Yeah, I've been writing about that a lot. Say a little bit more about that. I think the shifting baseline, as I understand it, is basically that you remember more or less things from, so everyone will say uh, it used to be very snowy, and maybe they're talking about a snowy era from when they were children. The baseline is, is sort of what you experience, and another generation of people has a different 
baseline of what they experienced, maybe less snowy winters or whatever it may be. Is that more or less? Yeah, so it was coined in fisheries by a biologist named Daniel Pauly, and it's the idea that he was looking at scientists who were comparing fisheries data now to data from only 20 years ago. Well, 20 years ago, fish populations were still so depleted from what they were 100 or 200 years ago. So if you take a longer-term perspective of multiple generations, you, you can really see how declined things are, but when you're only comparing them to 10 or 20 years ago, you're not really comparing it to the correct baseline. And so it, what it leads to is depleted expectations for us. So it's okay for a river to not have that many fish because we've never seen we've it never with a lot that. of fish. It's okay for, to not be able to swim in rivers because we haven't really lived in a place. I mean, things are changing, but this idea that we're accepting things um, the way they are, not the way they could be. Or conversely, it might be that we have, someone says, oh, we have so many osprey right now. And well, it's, it's just because there was a real positive osprey, you know, 20 or 30 right. years ago. Right. Well, let's move on and hear from uh, Tom. Um, you brought something to, to read? Sure. Give us a little bit of background, a little, uh, to set it up a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I did a Google search for uh, my byline in the word science and... <laughs> There wasn't much there, but I did find a story I wrote for the Bangor Daily News, um, oh gosh, how many years ago? And, oh, well, I'm putting my glasses on. It, uh, I just wanted to mention that Catherine writes a column for the Working Waterfront um, called Fathoming, which she co-writes with another scientist on staff at the Island Institute, and does a really good job of explaining complicated science. And, and just not to back up too far, but you mentioned, um, you, in one of your columns, you wrote about the, the uh, 19th century surveys, uh, data about along the coastline, what, what was seen, which I thought was fascinating. About the connections between cod and yeah. forage fish. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that was really interesting. Um, okay. So I found a story that I wrote in, I guess it's 2002, about a connection with Kelms, the former Kelmscott farm in Lincolnville. It's, it's no longer an, uh, uh, working as such. Um, and cloning, which was all the, the hot news at the time. And, uh, you know, if I can just introduce it by saying, I always take as kind of my, my, uh, my guideline is, remember that movie Philadelphia with Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks? And Denzel Washington was the lawyer, and he always would say to his, his expert witnesses, explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old. <laughs> and I, that's kind of my, my thing, is that I think that's what a, a journalist for a general circulation newspaper does, is takes something, hopefully understands it, that's the first part, and then explains it to people like a four-year-old. So, this is called, it's about cloning. Um, rare breed of pig cloned for Lincolnville Farm. Princess the sow has two new piglets she's never met. Napping in the spring sunshine Wednesday morning, her floppy ears covering her eyes, Princess was oblivious to the fact that she became a mother, sort of, on April 11th. The 600-pound pig is a Gloucestershire Old Spot, a rare breed that was established in England in the 1800s. Princess calls Kelmscott Farm in Lincolnville her home. With DNA taken from a tissue sample from one of her floppy ears, another sow played surrogate mother for Princess as a biotechnology firm successfully cloned two piglets from Princess, whose breed has dwindled to just 90 in the United States and less than 500 worldwide. Princess's progeny are happy and healthy in Wisconsin, Kelmscott spokesperson, spokesman Craig Olson said Wednesday, they are at Infigen Inc., the firm that completed the cloning for Kelmscott. When the piglets are weaned from their surrogate mother in late May or early June, they'll come to Lincolnville to meet their genetically identical, identical mother, Princess. Infigen donated the cost of its work to the farm, he said. 
Kelmscott off Route 52 in, in Lincolnville is operated by Kelmscott Rare Breeds Foundation, and, and the people who ran this have since um, gone on to do other things, but it was quite an uh, ambitious thing that they were trying to do there, uh, as people try to do with, with um, heirloom uh, uh, plant species. They're trying to do the same thing with animals. Um, there's a nonprofit started in 1995 to conserve rare and endangered breeds of farm livestock. Uh, Olson believes the cl- cloning of princess is just the third successful procedure undertaken on a rare livestock breed. A sheep was cloned in Italy, he said, and an ox was cloned, but the offspring died just 48 hours after birth. There are no U.S. laws forbidding the cloning of animals, though the Federal Food and Drug Administration does not permit the meat of cloned animals to be sold for consumption. Cloning is a recently developed procedure that, unlike artificial insemination or the transfer of an embryo from one womb to another, produces a genetic carbon copy of the first animal. DNA, the code that dictates that which is common to other members of a species as well as some unique characteristics, is isolated and then inserted into the cytoplasm of egg cells whose DNA has been removed. Olson said the piglets cloned from Princess won't necessarily look identical to the Lincolnville sow because features such as spots on the animal's coat are determined by environmental factors, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, a new chapter in science was written in 97 uh, when a sheep named Dolly, we all remember that, et cetera, et cetera, in Scotland. Um, with farms, in, I'll skip ahead, with farms increasingly relying on genetic strain of, on one genetic strain of livestock, Olson said meat, egg, and milk production would, could be threatened if a disease, which that species is susceptible to, begins to spread. Mm. I'll stop there, but... Uh, so instead of looking back, you're looking forward in that piece, kind of the, the wonder of science and applied to something that people could go and visit, so to speak. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, people have the sense cloning that we use it as a metaphor, you know, well, what exactly is cloning? And, and, I think, and I think this is what, what I've learned to do is, you know, I might have gotten a 20-minute explanation of, to cloning and boil it down to a paragraph or two. Um, but it, it made a good story, I thought, because there was a very real live something you could touch there mm-hmm. in Lincolnville. And, 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 and I thought it was interesting, too, that, you know, all the moral and ethical considerations kind of were outside this story because, you know, God forbid, whatever species we rely on for, for meat, if it suddenly becomes threatened and they all die off, you mm-hmm. know. So, kind of Do you remember any particular, again, in that community journalist piece uh, or, or notion, any reactions to that story? I don't. That, that was for the BDN, but that was before they had their um, wonderful comment section. <laughs> you know, right. the v, it's funny because one of the very first pieces I ever had published was when I was in college at UMass Amherst, and it was in 97, and it was about cloning. It was like a pro-con, he said, she said kind of thing in the college, the Daily Collegian in the paper, and I... You know, my first byline was this piece about cloning. I think mm. I might have been anti at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this particular case, the, the notion of, of rare breeds and a group dedicated at the local level to do that, again, people could see what they were trying to do, too. It was, it was visible to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, they were a high, high visibility organization there for a while. There was, yeah. was it the Metcalfs, I think, that ran it? They were um, interesting people, but yeah. It's, I mean, as we know, Costa Maine is such a fascinating place with all kinds of interesting people and 
you know, doing interesting things. Well, I'll just remind our listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We've just heard a story um, um, that Tom Groening, who is editor of the Working Waterfront News at this point, but back then he was um, was Bangor Daily News. Yeah. Um, and we also have Catherine Schmidt. You heard um, from one of her pieces about uh, Sturgeon. And um, now we're going to turn to Murray Carpenter. He's a freelance journalist. And, and uh, what would you like to share, Murray? I've got a, a piece that I wrote a few years ago for the science section of the New York Times, and uh, it's about fishless lakes, which I, I think I got onto this story from one of the water main water conferences years ago. And um, often, uh, I think we're all like this. Well, we, journalists have a list of stories, and and they'll percolate until something newsy happens. But this is about some researchers who are, who are studying some of these uh, fishless lakes. Uh, it's entitled "On a Hunt for Fishless Lakes Teeming with Life." Many people scour the Maine woods for lakes with big trout, but just a few seek places like this unnamed four-acre lake near the Machias River. Like thousands of other Maine lakes, it is scenic and remote, but it claims a rare distinction. It has no fish. Amanda Sheeran, a doctoral candidate at the University of Maine, hiked in through mud and over ice one recent morning to set amphibian traps in the lake shallows. Aside from the whistling wings of a pair of common golden lies in flight, it was utterly quiet. But Mrs. Sheeran cocked an ear. Ms. Sheeran, sorry, that's their style. <laughs> Sheeran cocked an ear. I've heard wood frogs calling at this lake in years past, she said. Far from barren, biologists say fishless lakes are hubs of biodiversity. Lacking piscine predators, they are home to a greater abundance and variety of invertebrates than lakes with fish and provide breeding grounds for frogs, salamanders, and waterfowl. But as fish are moved around, legally by fisheries agencies, illegally by anglers and bait growers, Fishless lakes are becoming increasingly rare. Rugged and sparsely populated, the Maine woods have some of the last fishless lakes in the Northeast. Some, like this one, are kettle lakes without inlets or outlets, excavated in the eastern Maine lowlands by melting blocks of glacial ice. Others are clear tarns and high mountains with outlets too steep for fish to ascend. Still others are simply too acidic for fish. All have probably been fishless since the glaciers receded. So that's the top of the story it's mm, yeah. mm. so again that notion of of having science interpret something that we might observe we might go to these places and we say i wonder why there's no fish here yeah it, it's it's that it's also i think to me to the the idea that uh for i had no idea that these lakes have such ecological value and most of us do think of a lake often its value is related to the fish that might be in it and, uh, yeah, so I, I think it's one of those stories that, that hopefully makes you look at uh, a pond in a slightly different way and maybe the greater ecosystem in a slightly different way than you would have otherwise. And um, I, I really like stories. Uh, I think we all probably like stories where you can actually get out in the field mm-hmm. with some of these researchers. And, and, you know, I have to comment briefly. We are, as journalists, uh, really indebted to the people who let us get out with them and uh, interpret their work for the general public because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really amazing. It's an amazing opportunity for us. Mm. And each of you kind of uh, bring that, that journalistic quality of being out in the field. You're not just reading somebody else's work and then reinterpret it. You want your experience and then translate that experience to the reader. Yeah, yeah a mentor of mine once said, I mean, that's our job mm. as journalists 
because other people, they have other jobs and they don't have the time to go out and research things. But it's our job to go out and, you know, find the truth as best as we can and communicate it to people. So Mm -hmm. going out in the field with researchers and um, reading up on things, that's part of what we do so that we can communicate it as best as we Mm -hmm. can. So um, all of these stories um, are are place-based. They're based here in Maine, although um, cloning, I suppose, you've got some other things, but you started with the story here. What is it, and you're all living here, and I assume you're living here by choice. What is it about Maine (laughs) that keeps it kind of fresh for you in terms of this connection between science and, and your writing? What is it? What is it? Well, for one thing, it's, it's fantastic about being a science writer or environmental writer here. We have a tremendous variety of, of habitats, species, et cetera. Uh, you know, you have the Gulf of Maine. Uh, we have, you know, coastal areas, estuarine areas, um, mountains. It's, uh, you know, all the riverine species it, and lakes, fishless and otherwise. It's uh, really remarkable. And, you know, in addition to that, in, in each of these areas, you have a tremendous abundance of high quality research you know that's going on people who are out there looking at all these different um, habitats and their denizens and the way they interact with each other and the researchers are here because we have the nature so a lot of other places they just they don't have the habitat anymore and they don't have the species that we have and we're for whatever reasons, which are multiple, you know, Maine is a rural state and it's relatively undeveloped. Um, even with all the dam removals, our rivers are relatively undeveloped and relatively clean compared to a lot of other places. And so we still have sturgeon in our rivers and the potential to bring them back here. And so that's what's drawing scientists and researchers here. Mm. You mentioned living here by choice, and, and that's certainly the case. Um, I believe in Belfast, where Murray and I live, the Pasagasawakeg River, I believe Pasagasawakeg is Algonquin for a place where sturgeon may be place speared. For, place for spearing sturgeon by torchlight. That's wow. it, jacking wow. sturgeon. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I've always fantasized about kayaking and having one of those suckers jump up in front of me, but wouldn't that be awesome? Um, for me, uh, I'm the non-science guy, um, very much the generalist, but when I took this job in February, uh, leaving the Bangor Daily News after 14 years, I mean, a, a, as a reporter at the BDN and Daily Paper, you just so much you can write about. You can, you know, interviewing a musician one day and then, you know, a politician. It's just very big, a very big um, beat, I guess. And I had some concerns about going to something that, that I perceived as much smaller. The Island Institute is concerned about these 15 year round island communities uh, in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, supporting them, sustaining them, and they have been doing that for 30 years. And this paper uh, was conceived as a way of um, kind of, uh, as the founder, Philip Conkling, said, ha- helping islanders have friends on the mainland and, and looking at the working waterfront, and, and which is a, a, a vanishing platform uh, in, in Maine and elsewhere. And I thought, I'm going to a much smaller world. Do I really want to do this? And I have never regretted it since because it's such a fascinating, I mean, it is all about, I mean, we, my wife and I moved to Maine because of the coast. I mean, I, we live briefly inland, but it is such a fascinating place. And, and there is a lot of science with the fisheries. I mean, lobster, I think half the lobster licenses in Maine are held by islanders. Um, and uh, the Island Institute just had a conference, I think it was on Saturday, uh, helping people develop skills to explain climate change. Uh, and, and this gap that we've talked about between um, lobstermen who are seeing things on their boats and scientists who understand 
what the data is showing and, and kind of making those connections uh, is very much what the Island Institute is about and, and involved in. So, yeah, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. It is a real rich environment for, for, for human stories and, and for, for creature stories and, mm-hmm. and economic stories, and it, it's all there. And, and the Gulf of Maine is, mm-hmm. you know, and the islands and the coast are just really a fascinating place to live and work. And, and we don't want to be writing about um, islanders like we write about sturgeon, right? <laughs> <laughs> As once were. There once were populations uh, yeah, exactly. that live out there. And I think that's what your, your institution is, is committed to. Actually, yeah, and actually, I mean, they lost one island. There were 16. I mean, Hurricane Island um, disappeared as a town. And, and yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a tough. And, and you also don't want to see them become essentially gated communities for, mm. for wealthy people. Mm. But Well, let's open up the, the phone lines and, and see what our listeners are thinking as you listen to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about Maine as a muse for science writers, journalists and science writers. Uh, Catherine Schmidt is with us. She's a science writer for the University of Maine uh, Sea Grant Program and author of The Coastal Companion, published by Tilbury House in 2008. Maybe we can have uh, some some readings about from Coastal Companion. No? But anyway, we can talk about that as a, as a, a way of interpreting uh, the, the natural world. Tom Groening is with us. He's um, the editor of the War- Working Waterfront News with Island Institute, and Marie Carpenter, a freelance journalist who's written for uh, New York Times and for uh, broadcasting for Maine Public Radio and is is uh, the author of a forthcoming book called Caffeinated. We may talk a little bit about caffeine um, in a while. But I would like you to, you to participate in this uh, conversation. Give us a call at one 866 6259378 or locally 4690500 that's 18666259378 and perhaps some of the questions that that uh, our panel would like to hear is is what um, science books do you read what inspires you and and where do you get your science news those are some questions that we'd like to explore um, as we as we go um, where, first of all, where do you get your inspiration? What, what science do you read? Do you read it in periodical form? Do you read books? Catherine, you read, do it for research. Yeah, so um, because my job is to write about science, I have a whole roster of projects that Sea Grant funds. And so I immediately, every time we support a research project with funding, um, I get to write about that. So I always have a menu of different projects we're funding that I can choose from, and I get to pick what's most interesting to me and what I think is most relevant to my readers. And and Marie, you said you have, kind of as a journalist, you have a long list of things that you'd like to write about, and it percolates to get ready. It it does, yeah. And I get my, I I read a lot of newspapers. I, I love the feel of newspapers. You know, I read the Republican Journal, I read the BDN, I read the New York Times, the Globe, you know, as much as I can. And uh, I, I get a surprising number of my ideas, you know, just from news stories. Right. Yeah. Right. How about you? Well, well lately, uh, the Island Institute has been the source of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of science people there, yeah. a lot of very well-educated, very passionate young people who are, who are doing uh, a lot of good work. And, and I'm learning a lot about this stuff, ocean acidification, things I knew nothing about before. Um, so I'm being exposed to that. We do have a phone call. Let's go ahead and uh, take that phone call. And I may have some trouble. I'm not hearing too much through the headphones, Amy. So um, we may have to reinterpret that, <laughs> um, those of you. So go ahead with your question or your comment. If you'd like to give us your first name and where you're calling from, um, that would be really helpful. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Hi, Ron. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. 
great. Hi, it's John from Old Town. And actually, my wife and I are going to be moving to Alamusic Lake in a few months. And uh, just on Wednesday, we went to the Alamusic Lake Association meeting, the one of two annual meetings, and they had a presentation by the federal fish hatchery that's on the lake. Um, and uh, one of the questions I have for your panel is, how does one deal with a federal institution like the fish hatchery that is in violation of phosphorus emissions into the lake because of their, you know, what they do. They're trying to save the landlocked salmon. It's a very commendable uh, activity, but it means that we're getting in the lake excess phosphorus. Is this ending up being a political thing that we have to write to our Congress people and get them to, you know, maybe up the ante a little bit, provide better equipment, or what what should we do? That's a great question, John. Um, Let's get some reaction from our panelists. Maybe it's, it's a story in the newspaper. What do you think, gentlemen? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Ladies. I, I think uh, as a journalist, I can't really advise you on, on what to do. It sounds like it could be an interesting news story. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Catherine. Uh, so you're referring to the Craig Brook National Fish Hatchery, yeah. and I would just suggest if you haven't already called the Department of Environmental Protection, they would be the ones who would be governing water quality in the lake. So they might be your first call, and then a follow-up might be to someone at the Bangor Daily News whose job it is to find out more. Well, the, the, uh, the Department of Environmental Protection has been involved and has cited the fish hatchery for violations. And what they can do is they can slap a fine on the feds. Well, how realistic is that? I mean, <laughs> oh, we've been fined? Well, gee, that's too bad. You know, you know, let's get on with what we've got to do. They don't have the money, and they don't have the, the ability to uh, to make what's wrong right because the technology isn't really all there. So it's sort of a no-win, catch-22 situation, and I, I guess maybe it is a, 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 a news story. Thanks for your call, John. Thanks. 1-866-625-9378 as we talk about um, science uh, here in Maine as, as, a, as a topic for writers. Um, again, maybe you've got some um, sources uh, or if we could just ask you where you get your science news. Give us a call, 1-866-625-9378. So, so that's a, a, a great kind of story. It's, it's the intersection between someone's life. <laughs> they're going to live on a lake and they want it to be the best lake possible and yet they're seeing something or they're hearing something that threatens that. I, I think it's fascinating because so many of the best environmental stories, I think, tend to uh, have these shades of gray in them. I, I think the caller was clearly aware that the hatchery is trying to do the right thing uh, and in the process something else is happening. That's that's where the great stories are. Those are the great stories. You know, it's 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 you don't always just get the story that, OK, this guy's dumping pollution out of a pipe. It's a bad thing, period. And um, I mean, that happens. But often the really the most interesting stories are somewhere in that uh, gray area where you can't just plunk a black hat on one guy and a white hat on another one and say, that's it. Mm. We have another call. If you'd like to give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, hi, Ron. This is uh, John. Uh, I'm a seasonal person up in Northport and I'm enjoying the show. Uh, I'd like to ask, I guess it was Catherine, a question. Uh, I'm a retired research biochemist, and one of the problems that as scientists we have is that uh, sometimes we go into these research projects with our own personal bias. Uh, for example, perhaps we want to write about how rare the sturgeons are, and we're coming in from that standpoint, but then find out you know, from the facts that actually there's more sturgeon than people realize. So I guess the question is to the journalist, uh, how do you uh, kind of control your own personal bias when you're going into a, 
you know, the research and then when you're writing the story? Or is it permissible as a, as a journalist to, you know, give your rank opinion about that? Great questions. Thanks, John, for calling. What do you think, Catherine? Well, how opinionated you are, I think, depends on who you're writing for. So um, I do write as a journalist, but I also do creative nonfiction, and I write essays and lyric essays. And so I have different outlets. Um, but if I was doing um, a journalism story, for example, The Working Waterfront, I would approach that as a journalist. And no matter what you think going in, you always have to maintain a willingness to be surprised and keep an open mind. And so part of that is you may think one thing, but by talking to people and listening to people and interviewing other people and getting their ideas, your mind gets changed. And so you just have to go in with an open mind and have a willingness. And that sometimes is the best part of a story. So a lot of times you go into a story and you're getting on a boat with researchers and you have no idea how the story is going to start or what the angle is going to be. And you let the time in your field um, unfold and, and give you the language that you need. And I suppose it's a little bit like the scientist himself or herself. You start with a hypothesis, but you don't know where that journey is going to lead you. Is that right? The Tom, the working waterfront guy here, the non-scientist. <laughs> the, the question of bias is something that I've heard all my career, 25 years, and I'm sure we all have. And, you know, this myth of the liberal media bias just drives me nuts. Um, and one issue that comes up in uh, lately is climate change. And we talked about this briefly before we came in here. Um, I mean, clearly something's happening. And I, we get hammered by certain groups, we reporters, whether I was you know, at the BDN or wherever, wherever I've been, um, organized conservative groups, deniers of, of the fact of what, what most people believe are facts about the climate change. And I think what, one of the things that happens, sadly, is you self-edit. You anticipate the, the angry phone call, the nasty email, the comment, and you sort of pull your punches. But, I, I mean, you know, all journalists, you write in a balanced way. You get the facts. You let other people tell the story. The whole thing of bias, I, I, we all have opinions. We're, I mean, journalists are among the most opinionated people I know. Um, and in fact, I think the last time the three of us got together, we had beers in front of us, which <laughs> not the case today yet. But, um, you know, we talk about things. We have a lot of opinions, but, but you, you do, you have a job to do as a journalist and the job is to get the story clearly to get other people's views on things, unless you're, you're writing opinion. And, and again, the climate change thing just drives me nuts because, um, and I, I, I don't, Catherine, can you make, make yeah, the point ahead. that you made earlier, which I thought was really interesting about a way to approach Sure. So earlier I was saying how, well, we don't even really, in my world, talk about climate, global climate change. There's whole institutions and university programs and nonprofit organizations of all political leanings dedicated to climate change and communicating about it. And we live in Maine, and so we don't really talk about that. We just talk about what's happening. We talk about um, the record warmth in the Gulf of Maine documented last summer. We talk about sea level rise. We talk about what we know is already happening on the ground that people are witnessing um, and what we can do about it. Mm. I, I want to get Marie? to the second part of the caller's question about, you know, can, can you have strong opinions and still write well about something? And I think uh, absolutely for a journalist you can. And this, guy, this gets back to the kind of community journalism that I did when I was working for Tom. You can cover a story and it's a small town and, and you know you have an opinion on it. You know you have a strong opinion on it. And, and you can write it well and you're going to see all of your sources the very next day in the grocery store, you know, in city council meeting. 
and you know you're not writing for your sources but you you want to have their respect if grudging and uh, I think you know absolutely you can have strong opinions about something and you can you can present a solid news story about it and you know that's that's really important I think to all of us mm. and so that that um, being able to, to uh, kind of face your sources uh, or, or um, f- facing your sources means that you want to get their contribution correct you want you correct. want to get you, you don't want to make them into a caricature and you know I, I again this is a really important lesson from community journalism that I think a lot of people never get a chance to learn it's easy to sort of uh, you know sit back and and you know take a swipe at someone who you've never met or talked to over the phone but every source deserves you know respect even if you really disagree with what mm. what it is they're saying or how they're saying it and I've seen people who who have been in this business who are uh, biased, who who use the platform, and they wash out. Thank God, pretty quickly, uh, of the of the business. Mm. Let's take another phone call. If you'd give us your first name, if you'd like, and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hello, my name is Carol, and I am calling from the town of Hope. And I wondered if any of your guests um, would consider looking into a subject that I have been increasingly concerned about. I am a honeybee keeper, and I know that there is much greater awareness now of a problem with European honeybees, but what most people don't seem to realize is that an even greater problem is the destruction of our native pollinators, of which we have hundreds. And a lot of people are beginning to think that at the base of this may be the wide dissemination of a class of pesticide called neonicotinoids. Neonicotinoids are being sold off the uh, shelves of the garden centers and the hardware stores. And I know people who intend to farm organically and they do not realize that these products are taken up by the plants and every part of the plant then becomes toxic to every insect. It is in the nectar and it is in the pollen. And uh, one ramification that I can think of of this is that this will have a devastating effect on our native plants and all of our native birds. Even the seed-eating birds depend upon insects to raise their young. Uh, Another very serious part of this problem is that it's widely used horticulturally and when you buy plants at the garden centers even bee friendly plants it often uh, is loaded with neonicotinoids exactly what you do not want if you want bee friendly plants I just received an email about a study that was done by the Friends of the Earth and they purchased a lot of bee-friendly plants at garden centers and then had them tested. And uh, over half of the plants did test positive for neonicotinoids. And I don't want to go on any longer. I'd rather hear um, your guests' um, thoughts about this and see if they were aware of this problem. Uh, Neonicotinoids have been banned to a great extent in Europe and their bee populations are recovering. Great. Thanks so much for your call and, and, and for suggesting this topic, uh, uh, Tom. Thank you. Th- that's a good example of a story that's hard to get your arms around, and it's probably a huge issue, and I don't dispute anything that she just said, um, but 
this is this is the limitations of, of journalism of of you know mainstream journalism is that what's the hook what's new is it regional is this a national issue and it's it's and often science i find this a little a little um discouraging in my work at the island institute is is there people at the institute are doing great work but it's all incremental stuff and it's hard to and and they want to be you know they want their work to be reported on and as it should it's interesting but how do you get your arms around that how do you again translate that how do you you know explain it to a four-year-old and and I, she explained it very well. Actually, it was very articulate. But that's, I think, a lot of newspaper editors would say, "Yeah, so what's new? How does this relate to Maine? How does this relate to my my readers?" And sadly, that that sort of thing just doesn't make the news. And 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 you know, this is where other sources, web sources, and and communities, I think, discuss this kind of stuff. But it's kind of sad, I think, that that this Catherine, is not getting out there. Your thoughts on on a topic like this? Well. I mean, the issue with bees is certainly not, I don't think, anything new. In fact, I think Time Magazine has bees, the colony collapse disorder and the bee issue on its cover um, this week or last week. But I, so I hadn't, and I had not heard the state of the science that I knew was that they were, it was due to some sort of chemicals, but there wasn't a clear culprit yet. So I did not know what the caller, what Carol suggested about this particular class of insecticides. Um, so to me, you're always looking for, in an environmental story that's sort of a gloom and doom story, you want to give people something they can do. You want to leave them with some sort of action they can take or um, a way to find out more and leave them with a little bit um, of change that they can make happen themselves. And so to me, the part that I might focus on if I was writing this story, um, which I probably won't because it's, it's not marine science or coastal issues, but if I was assigned to this story, I would probably focus on that garden center idea and try to go to some local garden centers in Maine and find out if the plants that people are buying, if they're organic, are they still treated? And I might um, try to focus on that part of the story. Marie, how would you respond to something like this? You you get someone who's who's obviously knowledgeable and passionate, and there's a clear connection to, to the ecosystem that you live in. Um, we all need pollinators. How, how would you approach this? Uh, again, I'm uh, I'm with Tom. It's, it's it's hard to you know you you want a you want a face, you want a person, you want a researcher, you want a place, you want something a, a point of entry into the mm-hmm. story. So it may be a garden center, it may be this report she's talking about from Friends of the Earth, but you'd really rather get it from a scientist, you know, not an advocacy group. Uh, from my perspective, to to make it a a, a news story. So, you know, if there was emerging research that was showing some of these problems, I mean, uh, and then you you would track down uh, who the authors are of the research, and maybe one of them's here in Maine. We do have have bee researchers here at the University of Maine. Mm -hmm. See, that that would be a great, to me, that would be a great point of entry, and they they could explain the science, they could explain the problem, and, you know, possibly some of the solutions. Great. Well, I want to move us, if we could, just to um, ask you to share a shorter piece um, as we begin to, to wrap up the hour, but uh, just uh, something perhaps you're working on now or, or is a little bit more recent. And we'll start with uh, Catherine Schmidt, who is a science writer for University of Maine Sea Grant. Uh, sure. So I'm just going to share an excerpt from a project that I'm working on now, which is about a group of Harvard students who spent their time camping on Mount Desert Island in the 1880s and they practiced science while they were there and they also ended up playing a very important role in the creation of what became Acadia National Park. So this is about them first getting together and planning their first camping trip. 
On the evening of March 31st, 1880, Charles Elliott gathered seven of his Harvard classmates in 34 Grays Hall to discuss a camping expedition to Maine. Since his father and stepmother were in Europe and would not be traveling to Mount Desert Island as usual that summer, Charles had use of the family yacht and camping gear. He wanted to share the main experience with his classmates, but this wasn't just a vacation. They would have to do some science while they were there. The young men looked around at each other. They were thinking more about escaping the stifling routine of spring term at Harvard and less about what department they ended up in. The Maine coast seemed as good a place as any to spend the summer. Edward Rand had already declared his desire to study plants. The others signed on to a specialty. Charles named the new club the Champlain Society after one of the first documented European explorers of the region. He would focus on geology. 17-year-old Sam, Charles's younger brother, would head the meteorology department. Edward Rand supervised ichthyology in, a different, in addition to botany. Henry Spellman and Charlie Townsend chaired ornithology. Townsend also would lead the collection of marine invertebrates. On June 22nd, Charles went to the waterfront in Beverly to meet Oren Donnell, who had spent the last two weeks readying the sloop sunshine. Some of the crew traveled down east under sail. The rest would arrive via ferry throughout the summer and stay for one or more weeks. To Charles and Sam, the approach to Mount Desert Island was familiar but still thrilling. But the other young men who had only read about the place must surely have been awed by the island's great slopes of bare granite, dark streaks of spruce fir forest, and red blocky cliffs chiseled by water. On the map, the island didn't look so big, but suddenly through the clearing mist, the 13 summits and shadowed valleys seemed to open and spread before them. Pometic, Eden. They set up camp in an open meadow on the eastern side of Somme Sound. A small brook, the outlet of Hadlock Pond, tumbled over a waterfall into the cove. They got an early start on prepping the site, cutting the hay on the field, and setting up the tents. This work prevented any labor on scientific specialties, except Spellman procured a downy woodpecker, the first terrestrial specimen for the ornithology department, and a common and year-round resident of wooden fence lines and young forests. Sam placed a box with louvered walls of wooden slats containing a barometer, thermometer, and hygrometer in a corner of the field away from the tents. Spellman, shotgun in hand, went back into the woods in search of birds. William Dunbar began to identify flowers. The men were relieved when the next morning proved to be sunny and dry. Together, they cut a sapling into a flagpole, and at noon, they hoisted the red, white, and blue signal of the Champlain Society. Yo-ho, they cried, yo-ho. Their cheers echoed across Somme Sound. <laughs> That's great. And that the same fascination that many of us have when we approach Mount Desert Island, these folks had, and they were part of that citizen science notion that um, we are all observers. We're all going to collect. They were, and their observations developed a love for the place that led them to want to protect it. Right, right. Let's um, move on and uh, hear a second piece from Tom. You got a second piece uh, you want to share with us? From I think I'll pay. I've got something I wrote about uh, ocean acidification, but it's. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pass. Okay. Murray, you got something that you're working on? Or, or um, we could talk a little bit about caffeinated if you, if, if you want. I, do you want to do that? I could read you a little bit. Yeah, uh, why don't you give us a little bit from caffeinated? From caffeinated. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm falling asleep, Murray. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll read you just a little bit from the beginning of the book. Uh, propped up on my desk before me, there's a vacuum-sealed Ziploc bag of white powder about the size of a compact disc, the package weighs 100 grams. The powder is an alkaloid, extracted from the leaves and seeds of plants that grow at mid-elevations and low latitudes. Chemists would recognize this substance as a methylated xanthine, composed of tiny crystalline structures. Biologically, the molecule is so useful that it emerged independently on four continents as an insecticide, keeping pests from nibbling on its host plants. 
Let's get personal. This substance courses through my veins as I write these words. <laughs> it is a drug, and I have been under its influence nearly every day for the past 25 years. And I am in good company. Most Americans take this drug daily. It is so effective, yet so simple, that if it did not grow on trees, a neurochemist would have in- invented it. Uh, so, <laughs> That's great. Great story. And, and how did you get interested in caffeine other than being a consumer? Uh, as a psychology major, I did a paper about this uh, senior year in, in, um, in college, and, and mm. I've kind of been interested ever since. Great. Yeah. So um, that book is coming out next year? Yeah, in March from uh, Penguin's Hudson Street Press. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, as we as we close, maybe your your final uh, kind of contribution to our conversation is: where do you think um, some exciting horizons are in terms of science and Maine? What are the things that you've got on your list of of things that you'd like to report on and you haven't quite got to yet, or or are there things that you're just um, kind of nibbling around the edge of, of your consciousness about science and Maine? Who, who's got a, a contribution there? Murray? Well, in broadest terms, I would love to do more reporting on fish. Uh, Migratory fish I find endlessly fascinating, and we have so many in Maine and Mm -hmm. and so many great stories. And uh, secondarily, amphibians. And Mm -hmm. this is is broad, but I I just tend to gravitate towards these stories, and uh, it's it's because they're fascinating creatures, and the people who study them tend to be really interesting. And we've got um, stories on um, both smelt smelt and airwives that are just kind of emerging. We're going to see some real change there. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so yeah, a lot of change, and it's a, it's a very dynamic area of study right now. Yeah. Catherine? Um, I, think, I think that climate is going to be huge. I think the changes in the Gulf of Maine and how they affect fisheries that we draw, so many of us draw our livelihoods from, I think that the Gulf of Maine is going to be some of the, f- the first place where these changes really manifest. Mm. How about you, Tom? Same here, the climate change, and I'm seeing that in my work mm-hmm. uh, at the Allen Institute. Um, the kind of intersection with fishermen and regular folks, uh, seeing what the, we have a program where uh, lobstermen report data to students, high school students. It's an educational program. I mean, it's just, it's as, you, as Murray said, a dynamic, it's such a dynamic environment and things are happening fast, and, and it'll be interesting to see um, how, how regular folks c- kind of embrace what's happening, and it's kind of scary. Mm. And again, we've got uh, just a, a minute. Um, are there particular writers that you would say, um, gosh, if you were thinking about science um, other than the company in this room, who would you turn to? Um, right? I, I'm endlessly inspired by the early explorer, naturalist, Alexander von Humboldt, you know, John Muir, the thousand mile walk to the Gulf, Thoreau, these kind of people who are out in it, observing really smart people. So going like back that. to the sources. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine? Uh, a classic, John McPhee and Rachel Carson, and some contemporary writers like Rebecca Skloot. Mm. Tom? <laughs> um, no one comes to mind. I, I just, I'm, I'm really enjoying work with these young people at the Island Institute who are just really passionate about their work and really bright and, and, uh, and, and know what they're talking about. So the future science writers, you're going to put your money on them. Thanks so much. Uh, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests here in the studio. Catherine Schmidt is a science writer with University of Maine Sea Grant and author of The Coastal Companion. Tom Groening is editor of the Working Waterfront News with Island Institute, and Marie Carpenter is a freelance journalist and author of the forthcoming book, Caffeinated, due out in March of 2014. 
Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with special guest Brooke, I believe, is here um, to help with that show. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. <laughs>